0: Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 156, Blessed Victor the Third. Dear brothers and sisters, annuncio vobis, annuncio vobis, annuncio vobis, gaudium magnum, gaudium magnum, gaudium magnum, habemus papam. Hey everybody, today's pope was born in 1027 AD. His name was Dalferio, the only son of Prince Landulf V of Benevento. Now, we've met Dalferio before, believe it or not, but it was under a different name. But more on that a little bit later. We know relatively little about his early life other than that his father was killed in a battle against the Normans when Dalferio was only around 20 years old. Now, Dalferio, being an only son and his father's heir, was destined to be the next ruler of Benevento, and he had his marriage arranged. But he himself was not interested in a worldly life. He ran away from home to try and join a monastery rather than be forced into marriage and into a political life. And one day while he was traveling with some members of his family, he asked to go make a visit to a church. And while they waited outside, he slipped out a side door and they took off for the nearest monastery. His family, however, wasn't going to let him get away that easily, so they sent a bunch of armed men after him and chased him around for a couple of months, and finally they caught him and dragged him back home to prepare him for his arranged marriage. But as you can probably guess, since we're not talking about a random married Italian nobleman, but a pope, he escaped again and he managed to enter the monastery of Santa Sofia in Benevento, and there he took the religious name Desiderius, and he took the vows of a Benedictine monk. Desiderius was quite zealous. He was a big supporter of the young reform movement in the church, and he was desirous of greater spiritual rigor. He apparently didn't think that Santa Sophia was strict enough, and he spent some time as a hermit at a couple of monasteries, including one on an island in the Adriatic. And during this time, he got to know some of the other young reforming clerics in Italy, most importantly, some of our old friends, Cardinal Humbert of Silvia Candida, and Frederick, the Abbot of Monte Cassino, who would later become Pope Stephen the Ninth. And it was Frederick who introduced Desiderius to Pope St. Leo the Ninth. It's quite possible that Desiderius helped St. Leo with his negotiations with the Normans. We'll see a little bit later on that his personal connections in the south of Italy, around Benevento, where his family's from, and with the Normans in Sicily, would often be put to service of the papacy. Now, Desiderius was still not settled in Santa Sofia, so in 1055, he met with the current pope, Pope Victor II in Florence, and he asked permission to join the Benedictine Abbey of Monte Cassino, run by his friend, the great abbot Frederick. And this was granted, and Desiderius entered Monte Cassino and was eventually sent to head one of its daughter houses in southern Italy. Now, if you remember from a couple of episodes ago, Pope Stephen IX retained his role as abbot of Monte Cassino while pope. But in 1057, He thought he was dying, and he came to Monte Cassino and asked them to elect a new abbot, and the monks elected Desiderius. But then Stephen recovered, so Desiderius was asked to wait until Pope Stephen would die before he could take over in his new role as abbot, so he was an abbot-in-waiting. Stephen, in fact, sent him as an ambassador to Constantinople, but just before Desiderius was about to get on the boat, news reached him that Stephen had definitely died this time. And Desiderius was now the abbot of Monte Cassino, so he headed back to Monte Cassino. Though it's worth noting that this this failed trip to Constantinople was not totally pointless. It was on this trip that he met Robert Guiscard, the great Norman leader in southern Italy. Desiderius was particularly good at communication with the Normans, and he had a very healthy working relationship with them. And as we heard last week, this relationship with the Normans is tremendously important for the papacy at this time. So Desiderius has that tool in his back pocket now, this great relationship with the Normans. Now he returned to his monastery, and he received the Abbatial Blessing on Easter Sunday, 1058. Now Desiderius is widely regarded as one of the greatest abbots of Monte Cassino after St. Benedict himself. His long time as abbot and his energetic and spirited leadership led to a tremendous growth in the monastery. During his time, the total number of monks topped over 200, While at the same time, Desiderius promoted a strict adherence to the rule of St. Benedict. The Abbey Church was completely renovated and rebuilt and decorated with beautiful materials and by artists that he brought from across the Mediterranean world. In fact, he hired Byzantine experts in architecture and mosaics to come build the new monastery church using Eastern techniques. And one really cool fact about this new basilica is that some art historians believe that, that as part of this new construction, the architects introduced the pointed arch to Western architecture. Up to this point, the standard way of building arches in churches was for them to be rounded. But rounded arches require much more buttressing and much more strength and couldn't hold the loads that a pointed arch could. Leo of Ostia, the great chronicler of the history of Monte Cassino at this time, notes that there were pointed arches in the new church, and some of them survived to stand in the church as it is today. Apparently not long after its construction, the monastery was visited by St. Hugh of Cluny, who would go on to use pointed arches in his construction at his monastery in Cluny, which in turn helped spark the great Gothic building program of the high Middle Ages. Because if you remember, or if you've seen or been to a Gothic church, pointed arches abound. That was one of the key insights that made Gothic churches so tall and beautiful With such thin walls, the pointed arch could hold the weight. And so it comes in this family tree from the Byzantine architects that were brought to Monte Cassino, from Monte Cassino to Cluny, and from Cluny to this great French Gothic building uh, tradition. So it's pretty cool. Pope Alexander II dedicated the new church in 1071 with huge fanfare. And Desiderius also expanded significantly the library. He made new copies of ancient manuscripts. Monte Cassino became a hub of intellectual activity in Italy and the collection of texts from the past that they had there was unsurpassed. Desiderius was likewise a player on the larger Italian and church scene. He was the go-between, as we've mentioned, for the papacy and the Normans. And we heard in the last episode that they played a huge role in the end of the pontificate of St. Gregory VII and in his conflict with the emperor Henry IV. Desiderius was often called upon to use his Norman contacts at the service of the papacy. Which brings us to where we left off last time. Gregory VII died in exile, supported by the Normans in Salerno in May of 1085. And Henry IV's hand-picked anti-Pope Guibert was in Rome and in possession of the city. And he held power in part through force and through his popularity with the anti-reform party in northern Italy. There seems to have been quite a lot of conflict, and for a year the papacy remained vacant. Gregory himself had said Desiderius should be a good successor, but Desiderius begged them not to elect him. But by summer of 1085, the Romans were loyal to Gregory, and they were concentrated mainly around the neighborhood of Trastevere. They forced the antipope out of Rome, and Desiderius and several cardinals moved into the city to hold a conclave. But Desiderius realized that when he got there, that they're all looking at his direction, that they all wanted to make him pope, and so naturally he ran for it which might be the most sensible reaction one could have when all the cardinals want you to be the pope. Now, a little later on, Desiderius brought some Norman allied troops to Rome to help calm things down again. Uh, there had been some stirring up by the antipope again. And as he arrived at the city, the cardinals made it known that if he entered, they would name him pope. So he refused to enter, and he went back to Monte Cassino again. And after a year or so of hiding, Desiderius was commanded by the cardinals in Rome to come to the city and help them figure out what to do with the current situation in the church. I mean, an anti-pope with no legit pope is not a great situation. In the past, that leads to the anti-pope just basically becoming the true pope, and we definitely don't want that. So Desiderius arrived, and sure enough, it was a trap. They wanted him to be pope, and he said no. Then they said, well, let's um, meet you, and and you can pick the person to become pope. So he said okay, and they met at the now-destroyed church of Santa Lucia in Sepsoli And he suggested on a candidate, a guy named Odo, the bishop of Ostia, and they said no. And finally, on May 24th, 1086, the cardinals and the people basically jumped Desiderius and forced him into the church and forced the large red cape that the pope at the time wore onto his shoulders and made him take the name Pope Victor III. But as perhaps Pope Victor could have predicted, not everyone was happy. The prefect of the city of Rome didn't like that Victor was so close to the Normans. He had been a prisoner of Robert Guiscard, and so he drove the Pope and the Cardinals out of Rome just four days after the election. And when that happened, Victor thought, well, this is a great opportunity. So he threw off the papal regalia and ran away to Monte Cassino. Now, the theory many historians have was that Victor was sick at the time. He was an older man, and he even had a hard time getting through saying Mass just because of his sickness. And it wouldn't be until March 21st of 1087 that Victor finally acquiesced and put back on his papal garments and acknowledged that he was indeed the Pope. So in May of 1087, Pope Victor III returned to Rome, but there was a problem. Our friend, the Antipope Guibert, had come back and had taken St. Peter's Basilica. Luckily, Victor had some Norman friends to help him drive the Antipope out, and he was formally consecrated on May 9, 1087. But Guibert then drove him back out again, and Victor found himself again at home in Monte Cassino. Now, some allies asked him to try and retake Rome again, so he did it and he took up temporary residence at San Bartolomeo on the Tiber Island. But again, he was then driven out, and he would never return. While he was away from Rome, several prominent clerics, including Odo, the bishop of Ostia, briefly abandoned supporting Victor. And this effort at denouncing Victor was prompted by a French bishop who initially had been a big fan of the popes, but now decided to throw his lot with Henry IV, and he convinced a couple others to do so. And eventually, most of his side returned to supporting Victor, especially Odo of Ostia. But it made the situation worse for Victor in the end. Now, feeling incredibly sick, Victor called a synod in Benevento, his home in southern Italy, to condemn Guibert, the antipope, and to continue the reforming work of his predecessors. But his time was short. As soon as the council ended, he went back to Monte Cassino, and with the cardinals surrounding him, pointed out Odo of Ostia, his erstwhile opponent, to be his successor. He died on September 16th, 1087, and he was buried in Monte Cassino, his beloved monastery. He was beatified by Pope Leo XIII on July 23rd, 1887. This holy abbot and unwilling pope, Blessed Victor III, was succeeded by the guy he pointed out, Odo Ostia, who we now know today as Blessed Urban II. And we'll talk about him and the First Crusade, which he called next week. Thanks for listening to Abemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you and God bless you.